Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dewar and this is... Hitler, Copperface Jack and Body Snatching, the real history of St. Stephen's Green. Stephen's Green is one of Dublin's most famous places. Located in the south inner city, today it's a pretty park surrounded by some of the city's most picturesque buildings. These house the Royal College of Surgeons, Government Departments and one of Dublin's most famous hotels, the Shelburne. The area is also one of Dublin's most famous shopping districts, Grafton Street, for example, commands some of the most exorbitant retail rents in the world. Its history, however, is very, very different. In this podcast, historian Frank Hopkins, who has published a book on St. Stephen's Green, joins me to talk about the less well-known histories of this area. Now, these are really fantastic and funny at times. And if you think you know the history of St. Stephen's Green, trust me, the real story is a lot different. Now we're going to kick off back in the late Middle Ages, when the Green was one of what Frank calls Dublin's killing grounds. Then we'll weave our way through public executions, the brothels that used to frequent the area, stopping in copper-faced jacks to find who the real man behind the notorious nightclub was, and then we'll finish up in the early 20th century, when a certain Mr A. Hitler was a regular sight around Stephen's Green. When the show is over, you can get Frank's book and... By the end of the episode, you'll definitely want to. There's a link in the show notes below, but it's called St. Stephen's Green, a history of the green and its environs, and it's available pretty much everywhere. You'll also see in the show notes this week's special supporters mentioned as well. Each week, I'm listing show supporters in the show notes as a mark of gratitude. The show is currently entering a new phase, not only in terms of an increase in episodes, but also in producing content that dives deeper into original sources, making what I hope will be better shows. For example, around June the 1st, I'll be releasing the first episode in a new series that has taken years to put together. It's actually a return to a story I covered a few years back called Murder at Mother Mountain. 
Over the last two or three years, I've been researching this case, and with the support of listeners on Patreon and Acast Plus, I was able to bring on board Liam Costello to help with the research after I realised how complex this story was. Now, Liam and myself have uncovered a huge amount of detail that's changed what I thought the original case was about. It's developed into a five-part series that's a deep dive into pre-famine Ireland set to the backdrop of true crime. I'm really excited about getting this one out because, as you'll hear, it's something a bit different, but only possible because of show supporters allowing me to take the time needed to work through parish registers, prison records, old letters and various archives to piece together this intriguing story. If you want to support the show, you'll be helping make this kind of podcast that involves original research not available anywhere else. Now, your support makes a big difference and you get bonus features in return, such as ad-free content, early access to the show and extra episodes. You can find out more at patreon.com forward slash Irish history or Acast Plus. I have links to that in the show notes below as well. Finally, I will say today's podcast is probably not suitable for younger ears. So if they're listening out, maybe slip on the earphones at this point and we'll dive into the show now. St. Stephen's Green can be a tranquil oasis in Dublin today. It's got beautiful Georgian buildings that surround a large park, so it's a great escape from the hustle and bustle of the city. The carefully tended gardens and ponds are an oasis of calm. However, its origins are so different. Before we get into the fascinating stories of the characters who frequented this part of the city over the last few centuries, Frank gave me a brief overview of St. Stephen's Green and where it came from. Everybody knows that it's this lovely, lush, uh, well-kept uh, jewel in the crown of Dublin Corporation. And it's this walled-in enclosure. But back back in the day, back in the 1600s, the Green was a, uh, was a marshy wasteland. Uh, nothing really happened there. People used to go there to shoot birds and uh, to hang people. Um, <laughs> not at the same time, but... Uh, it, it was a floodplain of the, the Stein River. The st- Stein flowed under the green, and uh, but uh, and the green itself was uh, a floodplain of the of the River Stein. Uh, the, the name Saint Stephen it comes from Saint Stephen's Church, uh, which is a medieval church in the area. It's where kind of Mercer's Medical Center now, now is. So it was based around that. There was a leper hospital there as well. It began to be developed in uh, sixteen sixty three when the, uh, Dublin city was broke. Uh, from various wars and the, the civil war and rebellions and things like that, so they decided to. They took seventeen acres of the green and broke it into into lots and and auctioned them off to to, to various people. And uh, there was eighty six parcels of lands, and they, these were bought by merchants, bakers, tradesmen, and other professionals. And they uh, began to develop into the square that we know today. Um, it was enclosed and gated in 1666, and the park was levelled, but it was mainly used for His Majesty's horse as well as the Dublin militia. But this, despite the work that went, went into it, the park was literally uh, a tip for the city. Uh, it, it was full of rubbish, and there was constant complaints about it. Now, efforts were made to clean it up in 1780, but the decline continued apace. And in 1798, the park was absolutely ruined because of the constant usage by the Dublin Yeomanry, and it was a complete mess. Matters began to improve somewhat in 1814 when uh, the Green was privatised by, by an act of Parliament and uh, commissioners were installed to, to take over the running of it. The old walls were demolished 
ditches surrounding uh, were filled in and uh, the park was drained and levelled. Trees and shrubbery were put in, and but one, one thing that became a major bone of contention, only residents were, uh, of Stevens Green were allowed to use it. So pro- protests rumbled on about that for about another 60 years until Sir Arthur Guinness bought it and uh, he opened he offered to pay uh, commissioner commissioners to open it to the public and so that's when it became the park that we know and love today if we turn the clock back and look at the earlier history of the general area St Stephen's Green was perhaps best known as an execution ground these executions were very different from what you might be thinking frank explains how they were halfway between public entertainment and punishment Effectively, for a few centuries, it was the killing fields for Dublin. Of course, there'd, there'd be a spectacle. M- many uh, miscreants were taken from, or cont- condemned to die, were taken in procession from Newgate Prison in Smithfield, across the city, up by College Green, uh, past the statue of King Billy, and up Grafton, what was Grafton Street, and then out by the Gallows Road. It's called the Gallows Road, and you can see it on this. On, yeah, the, 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 there's a big gallows. It's kind of a triple capable of hanging several people at once and uh, there, there's not that many descriptions of the processions but there are one or two interesting ones um, one of the description there's a fella called John Odwin and he was a um, he was a surgeon and he lived in George's Lane now he was convicted in 1727 of killing his servant Margaret O'Keefe and he raped and murdered the woman and now he was taken from Newgate in procession and a black cart with his cut uh, so he's waving to people. Uh, there's thousands turned out, and he he got up and he, he they, they got to the to the gallows, and he, he stood up and he made the longest death speech as ever recorded. It was reported that it lasted for two and a half hours. He spotted somebody who in the crowd who gave it evidence against him, and and he called he called him up and told him that he forgave him. Then he went back, got back to the car, and and he tied the noose around his own neck and jumped out. One of the ones that stands out for me, there was a guy called William Wardell. And in 1775, if there can be an amusing aspect to, to a hanging, this was it. Wardell, he, he, uh, he was a habitual criminal and he'd been uh, in and out of the courts at at least 20, 20 odd occasions. But he'd robbed silver, a silver plate from a lady Parsons. So he was sentenced to death. It was just uh, uh, the straw that broke the camel's back. And he was sentenced to death. So again, he was brought to, brought to the to, to the gallows. Fortunately for him, um, the normal hangman had retired the week before, and so there was a rookie hangman in his place. So he get, the, apparently the rookie hangman got up, and instead of tying a noose around poor Wardell's neck, he proceeded to to coil it around, just in a circular fashion. And uh, someone from the crowd had to step forward and show him how to tie a noose. And uh, t- so uh, he was duly dispatched according to the rules of art, as the, the article went. So <laughs> this is a, a weekly, almost weekly occasion in Dublin during the 18th century. And uh, for, for, for most of the 18th century, um, when, when most of the, where I found most of the reports, what struck me was uh, that the uh, exceptional punishments handed down to, to, to women now, mo- most men were just hanged or hanged, hanged and quartered, but uh, some women were actually, uh, they, were, they, they were half hanged and then burnt. It was the last execution on the green involving a particularly notorious murderer that saw this brutal punishment meted out to a woman. The last hanging that 
ever took place on the green. Well, and this actually took place within the, the confines of the green was a, a woman called um, Mary Fairfield. And she was hanged for the murder of a wet nurse named Mary Byrne. Now, she was convicted a, a, along with a, a Dublin watchman called Constable Funt. There are no details of the actual crime. The, the, I think it was the, the Freeman's Journal report. It was too barbarous to comment any further on this crime. But they'd stopped actually hanging people on the green, but they decided to make an example of, of uh, Mary Fairfield. Her execution was delayed because uh, there was a, a thing where... Uh, when a woman was convicted, she could plead her belly. So, oh yeah, she could uh, she could say she was pregnant and that this would d- delay the, the execution. So Funt had been executed the year before, but uh, she, she, she went before a jury of matrons who decided, yes, yeah, she might be pregnant. So they had to wait it out until it was clear that she wasn't pregnant. So, so then they decided to go ahead and execute her. So they went back to the green and... The, 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 the sheriffs, the, two, the, the, the city sheriff, the county sheriff, and the, 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 the police had been newly reformed around that time. Um, uh, they just transferred from the old parish watch system to a new organised uh, uniform police. So, so, they, so they wheeled out the police and the horse guards, and they had a procession uh, behind the sheriff and the, the militia and right across the city. And they, they took this woman and they half hanged her and then burnt her, burnt her on a, on a pyre in the middle of Stephen's Green. For, for what reason, I don't know. But whatever she did, it must have been pretty horrendous because because even the papers wouldn't report part fully on what had happened. Before we move on from the topic of executions, Frank had one last anecdote about the execution of a Catholic bishop that took place in the 16th century. The unfortunate individual in this case was the Bishop of Cashel, Dermot O'Hurley, and his end would make the hairs on the back of your neck stand on end. Bishop Hurley, uh, he, he was the Archbishop of Cashel, and uh, he was executed in 1584, as you say. Um, the penal laws were in full swing. Now, uh, he was a very well-educated man. He'd stud- he studied phil- philosophy and law at Louvain and Reims, and uh, he was appointed Ar- Archbishop of Cashel in, uh, three years earlier in 1581 by the Pope and sent back to Ireland. But, so he returned uh, in, in disguise to Ireland in 1583, but Elizabeth's spies um, arrested him and brought him to Dublin Castle. Now they tried to, to make him recant his faith and also to inform on other leading Catholics, but he refused. So uh, he, he refused to say anything. So the they, they subjected him to this torture known as the boots. And what they, they strapped on boots and filled them full of animal fat, and, uh, tallow and things like that, and set them on fire and, and tried to make, which must have been, you can only imagine that, how painful and how, the, the horror of all of that. And, uh, but he, he still wouldn't recant and, so, and, and he refused to say anything. So they, they, they actually hanged them at Stevens Green in 1584 on the 21st of June. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Aside from executions in its early days, Stevens Green was a pretty unruly place. Riots and casual violence were not uncommon. Frank told me about this particularly chaotic football match that led to the deaths of several people. But one of the one of the, the, the best ones that I saw was uh, it, it was uh, the butchers and the weavers in seventeen hundred. The butchers and the weavers had gathered on the green to have a football match, a forty aside football match. But uh, they decided to abandon the football and uh, they, they, uh, they decided to have a row instead and using clubs, pikes, stones, cleavers, and guns. So uh, they, 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 it was actually a massive riot. Um, uh, the six or seven people were killed, and and uh, and about seven, seventy were badly injured dur- during this game that got out of hand. But uh, the butcher, uh, the the weavers chased the, the butchers to their into their stronghold at Patrick Street. Uh, the the the, uh, the butchers' wives came out with with sticks and stones uh, to attack the weavers, so the uh, to help their men their men folk and. Uh, the, the, the weavers retaliated by pulling their houses down. <laughs> so there's six or seven houses demolished during the riot. Six or seven people died and 70 badly injured. Now Dublin's most famous red light district was in a place called the Monto, located on the other side of the river, which emerged in the mid-19th century. However, as Frank now explains, before the Monto came into existence, Stevens Green, and in particular a place called Goat Alley, today it's called Diggs Lane, was well known for its brothels. However, some of the men who ventured into Goat Alley lost more than their money. I see, all, all through the seventeen hundreds and the, the eighteen hundreds, like the, uh, the, the, so, some of the streets around the Green were dens of iniquity. There's, there's an infamous place called uh, Goat Alley behind the Green. Um, it's now Diggs Lane, and uh, the, in eighteen thirty five, John Bramble described it as a second demora and he was complaining about the increasing number of miserable outcasts and their companions, robbers and resurrection men who came from Goat Alley who were frequenting these brothels and running them. Um, the, the earlier brothels in Goat Alley were infamous for not only uh, the, the, the sex workers, I suppose, at the time were uh, the, the, the lure in men, uh, the, the, the watching out for the likes of graziers and farmers come up for the day in the country and invite them back. But not only would they, they take their money, but they had a particular uh, habit of stripping them of, of all their clothes. You know, they, they, they go back and they, they wouldn't get to have their way with the women, like be straight in. And uh, there'd be a couple of men waiting there to uh, take their money and then strip them and throw them back out in the street. They, they had a particular trick as well, uh, catching drunk people on their way home and, and uh, they, they'd wait at the corner. You can imagine Dublin at the time, there was no street lighting or, and it was really dark. So a drunk man 
coming home would be fair game. And they, and they put a loop on the ground and, and went away from the step into the loop, pull the loop tight and drag it into Goat Alley. If I, if I could, I'd like to read you just a, a little extract about how, how dangerous it was. Um, the, the, there's this book that I came across. It's called Evenings in the Duffery. And it was, uh, it was written by a folklorist called uh, Patrick Kennedy. And uh, it's written in 1869. And he recounted uh, this advice that a friend gave him, warning them to stay clear of Goat Alley. The only real danger won't be near until you get to the city. So if you have any valuable thing to carry from Luke Burns or Francis Street down towards Stevens Green or the bank, take a couple of men with you out of Luke's house and let one go before and the other one behind. Keep your parcel tightly tucked up under your left arm and a pistol cocked in the right hand. Keep a sharp look out at the corners of Hanover Lane, Drury Lane and Goat Alley. And when you find yourself safe as far as William Street or Stevens Green, you may put your pistol up. So... (laughs) One of the most stunning buildings on the green today is the Royal College of Surgeons. However, this, like pretty much every other structure on St. Stephen's Green, has its own shady history. Frank began by explaining the background to surgeons and how they emerged in the late Middle Ages. Back in medieval times, uh, surgeons were part of it. They were part of a guild along with barbers and apothecaries. But uh, as the years wore on and the surgery became more and more sophisticated, they wanted to try and break away from the, 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 the barbers who, who, who they considered beneath them. So eventually they got their way in the, the, the late uh, 1784, I think it was, and uh, they, they, they were given a, a royal charter. So at that, that time, um, due to Britain's various wars around the, the, the globe, uh, they needed more and more surgeons, like particularly during uh, the times of the Napoleonic Wars. There was a, they were, the Brits were clamouring for surgeons now, they didn't have a premises. The surgeons, so they're basically uh, practicing on, on on dead bodies in in their living rooms and things like that. After getting their first charter in 1784, the surgeons bought a building on Mercier Street. Then, in 1810, the Surgeons College moved to its current location on Stevens Green. The presence of hundreds of medical students created a demand for cadavers. The Royal College of Surgeons, as we know it, they, they, they moved to, to new, the new premises that, 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 that's on the edge of the green now and, uh, in, in 1810. And uh, there was maybe three to 400 anatomy students there. So they needed a lot of bodies to, to practice on. This led to the emergence of what were called body snatchers, who would steal the bodies of recently deceased people, usually from city graveyards such as Glasnevin and Buddy's Acre, and then sell them to surgeons to practice on. Frank explained how this worked. These people would go and they, they get a fresh corpse. They go to Bully's Acre or to Glasnevin. Bodies weren't buried six feet under as they are today, but uh, they, they'd be just below the surface. So they had this kind of a crude, kind of a, a, a loop, a stick with, a, with a, a rope loop on the end of it. So they dig down a few feet, put this loop around the, the head of the corpse the, and they give it a twist and literally drag the bodies out of the ground. And, and they do cart them across the city then and sell them, usually to surgeons in Mercer Street or to anatomists at Trinity, Trinity College. A lot of the college porters were involved in selling the bodies was, uh, or arranging. They were, the, they, they were the middlemen between the body snatchers and the, and the surgeons. The surgeons didn't want to be seen to, to be involved in this practice. But uh, was, uh, some of the porters were involved, a guy called Anthony McMahon, uh, Neil Lawler, and the 
probably the most famous of them was a guy called Christy Dixon, who uh, the, the, the surgeons tried to sack him a few times, but he but he had so many, he had so much uh, evidence on, on most of the surgeons in there that they couldn't sack him in the end. Frank also told me this story about a certain Michael Farrell, who was one of Dublin's most notorious body snatchers. There was one particular fella, uh, he was an infamous, he was well known around the city for it. His name was Michael Farrell. And there, there's one particular case in 1831 where a, a gang of body snatchers, uh, sometimes they didn't even wait for the, the, the people to be buried. They, they, they invaded a, a wake in Bow Lane, the nearby Bow Lane. And there's a woman named O'Carroll, an old woman named O'Carroll being waked. And she uh, they snatched the body and, 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 and ran off with a dragon through the streets of Dublin. And the poor distraught family uh, went chasing after the, these people. And they actually went to the College of Surgeons uh, with the police. They, they knew the body was in there, but they, they, they were refused entry. So it was a particularly horrific case. Over the course of our chat, one of the stranger things Frank mentioned about the history of St. Stephen's Green was something called child stripping. Now, this is not what you might think. As Frank explains, this is nothing to do with sexual abuse, but it's something quite different. When, when you hear child stripping, like it's there wasn't a, a sexual element to it, or uh, but it, what it was was uh, it was mainly perpetrated by middle-aged women, and what they would do, they would uh, to, to get a preferably a wealthy child in the street and uh, lure him away, lure them away with sweets or. A, the promise of a lollipop and uh, just take all their fine clothing and uh, uh, strip the child, leave the child there and just take the, the clothes to a pawnbroker and get the money for it. Uh, there, there's one case around um, there's fields behind Stephen's Green called Harcourt Fields. There's uh, another place where people would gather for infamy and kind of uh, to waylay people and so uh, to, to bury uh, thieves would bury their booty there. There's a uh, a famous case in 1822 when uh, a three-year-old son of a wealthy Thomas Street merchant was uh, kidnapped uh, outside his home and uh, brought to, to Harcourt Street. Uh, he was stripped and abandoned. Now, he, that child nearly died. Uh, although it was September, it must have been a particularly cold night because he, he nearly died from hypothermia, I presume. And uh, he's just... She, the, the, the woman that took him was never, never caught. But uh, it was a it was a, a very commonplace thing in, in Dublin and big city. I, I've seen them described um, on a couple of occasions as uh, for some reason, and I don't know what the connection is. Shoelers, like uh, the, the people who perpetrated this type of crime, but it was it was just a, an economic crime, really. You know, among the many attractions on Saint Stephen's Green today is the countless bars and nightclubs. The most famous. Or notorious, depending on your view, is a place called Copperface Jacks, located on Harcourt Street, just off the green. While this has a somewhat legendary reputation today, the man who it's named after was quite the character. The story you're about to hear is one to file under best nightmare neighbour story you're ever going to come across. Copperface Jack, he was a temporary born, and he's known as a hanging judge. Uh, he's called Copperface. He, he, uh, his name was John Scott. He, he'd been Solicitor General, Attorney General, and Lord Chief Justice of Ireland. Uh, he was called Copperface Jack because he had an exceptionally red face because he, he loved the gargle. Uh, and he, he, it was said of him that he used to have two able-bodied lackeys 
on standby every night, waiting outside whatever tavern he was in with his mate, uh, the equally equally disreputable uh, Sham Squire who lived around the corner from Francis Higgins. So uh, so he'd have two lads waiting outside to carry him home every night after his, his drunken his drunken rampages and he was quite corrupt. Um, he was and he was universally hated, even by all of the barristers and in his courts. Or uh, one of his most famous uh, things that he's famous for, he had a long-running battle with the editor of the Dublin Evening Post, a guy called uh, John McGee, Copperface Jack, and his friend uh, uh, the Sham Squire. They organised to have him uh, arrested on trumped-up libel charge, and Copperface Jack locked him up. Uh, he, he put it to really excessive bail of about, uh, I think it was 10 grand at the time, which was a lot of money. So, so McGee uh, couldn't, couldn't afford this, so he landed in Newgate for a long time. But he, he sat in Newgate brooding over this, and he, he swore when he got out, he, he plastered all over his papers that he was going to get even with Copperface Jack, that he that he had 10 grand and he was going to spend it all on getting his revenge on Copperface Jack. So so what, what he did was uh, Copperface Jack had a, a house out, out in Monkstown called Templeville. So, so McGee bought the adjoining land and he used to advertise carnivals in, in uh, every Saturday kind of thing. Uh, to be he'd provide free drink, to be climbing up greasy poles, to be football matches there, and the, 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 like the, the things just turned into riotous assemblies. Uh, the, there was an estimated ten thousand people at one of these parties. What uh, he got a number of shaved pigs and set them loose in, in, in and, and McGee. He said, "If you catch one, you can keep them." The pig was a valuable commodity in the seventeen hundreds, and the pigs ran into Copperface Jacks beautifully manicured lawns and uh, gardens and they, within half an hour the place was destroyed Jack eventually got the last laugh on McGee when he, he, he managed to jail him for nearly two years for contempt. Now without question the bizarrest individual associated with St Stephen's Green was a certain Mr A. Hitler who was known to frequent the area in the early 20th century. It's not Adolf but he's lesser known half-brother Aloysius. This guy, um, I think it was in 1910, uh, or so, this woman was at the horror show uh, with her father. Uh, her name was Bridget Dowling. I think she's from somewhere out Talloway. But uh, yeah, this handsome man approached her, her and her father and started talking to them. And his name, uh, it turned out that his name was Alois Hitler. While he was here, he was working in the Shelburne as a waiter. This, and it turns out that he was uh, Adolf Hitler's half-brother. So against her father's wishes, she eloped with the, this handsome guy and they, and they went to Liverpool. And uh, Bridget's father tried to have Hitler charged with kidnapping, but it, it never came to anything. And they went to live in Liverpool. Um, the, their marriage only lasted for four, four years. Uh, Hitler abandoned the, the family and became a razor blade salesman, salesman. And he faked his own death and marriage again. Now, Bridget and, and Alois Hitler, they had a son called William Patrick, uh, so William Patrick, and, and as Adolf Hitler came to power in later years, uh, uh, William and his mother tried to exploit the relationship with with the Führer, and uh, young William asked uh, asked Adolf for a job, and uh, Hitler wrote back to him saying he couldn't be seen to be uh, giving his, his family any favours, and that 
Uh, Bridget wrote her biography in 1944, I think it was, and she tried to exploit the, the, her relationship with uh, she, she claimed that he, he'd come, uh, come to visit her in Liverpool, which never happened. He, she said all sorts of things. She said she 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 claimed that she had advised him to trim his moustache. And she said that he'd stayed her in Liverpool in 1913. Thanks to Frank for sitting down with me. I really enjoyed making that episode. Now, we only scratched the surface. There's lots more great stories in Frank's book, St. Stephen's Green, A History of the Green and Its Environs. You can find that in the show notes below. There won't be an episode next week, but I will be back in two weeks' time. Until then, Sloan. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.